up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia, and we are here for episode 159 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We have a special guest today. I think this is maybe like his fifth time on the show, tops maybe, but <laughs> yeah, I should, I should be here more. Michael Ford is joining us tonight. So why don't you say hello and let everybody know who you are? Um, I am editor-in-chief of the website, MMA Ratings. I'm also the producer, the post-producer of the podcast. Um, what else? What else can I say? Um, occasional writer, uh, general personality in, involved in some of the machinations of MMA Ratings. And comic book connoisseur as well. We need to talk about that one day. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, I just recently launched my own uh, comic book related podcast. Um, you know, at some point we can talk about that. But I don't want to intrude on on your podcast. I just wanted to to sort of be a, a, a welcome third voice. Yes, very welcome. Sean, why don't you tell, say, uh, say hello to everybody and let them know how you're doing. Oh, hey, guys. Uh, I'm staying busy, man. I'm either helping a seven-year-old learn the value of coins and dollars, or I'm making my big girls either run or hike in my spare time. I like got, can't have them sitting around the house all the time, so I got to drag them out. I think in between all of them, I've like, I think I've, jog- I've run like 41 miles, and I've walked about 17 in the past three weeks in between walking with everybody and jogging with everybody, so it's, it's literally killing me, but it's good for them, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, that's the difference between living in San Antonio and living in New York. I don't know how many people I could potentially get infected by if I had walked that many miles. Yeah, it's like a ghost town, man. It's nobody out here. Do you know anyone, Michael, that's been impacted? I have I have a friend and a coworker that's actually been, um, that have contracted the COVID-19. Yeah, I have a friend that's uh, currently, um, you know, on quarantine. She tested positive uh, a few days ago. So I, you know, I'm checking in on her every little bit. Other than that, I just know people who know people rather than anyone, you know, in particular that I know. What about you, Shawan? Do you, do you have any close connections that have uh, come down with it? I haven't known anybody. I've had some people who work for like, you know, uh, CPS and stuff like that. And they've had, they've had to be around people who've had it and they've self-quarantined themselves just because they're afraid they might have it and spread it. But I don't know anybody who's officially had it as of yet. Right. Plus the tests are really hard to f- come by. So it's one of those, you know, just as a precaution. If you yeah, that yeah, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of it. I, I'm one of those people who believes that during that time when there, when a lot of people were getting sick and you were taking a flu test and they said it wasn't flu, I, I was one of those people who believes that a lot of people have already had it like months ago and now it's just becoming a big thing in the past couple of months. Yeah, that very well may be because, you know, they were saying that there were early cases even as far back as November. And, you know, if you traveled or if you came into contact with people who traveled back then, you could have contracted it. And being that they didn't really know what it was yet, um, you know, some of the people, um, you know, got really sick at the end of the year or the beginning of the year wouldn't have even, it wouldn't even showed up on anyone anyone's radar. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was for a while. Because I, I, with my, I've had like six, seven heart surgeries. I had a bunch of health issues. So my parents are always paranoid about me just going out, period. But like, uh, I don't know, let's say like, I don't know when it was, a couple months ago, whatever, probably around Christmas, maybe even Thanksgiving. I was like, I was like, ill, like, I thought I was going to die, <laughs> like for three days in a row. And then I just came out of it. And in reading the description of the uh, symptoms and everything, I'm like, maybe, maybe that was what it was during that time. Because I had a flu test. And they said I didn't have the flu. They didn't know what was wrong with me. Yeah. But 
scary stuff out there. Which yeah. scary stuff, and that's really where we are today. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a light of mixed martial arts and kind of put that lens on it. But even you know, this first development today, we're talking about UFC 249, and as we talk about that, we want to look at that in the current situation where there's more than a million. We're keeping up on 1.5 million cases around the world, 75,000 um, deaths, 211 countries have, had, have been impacted. Within the United States by itself, there's 365,000 uh, cases and over 10,000 deaths. Like this is, that's the current situation right now, and it's understandable why major sports across the world have been shut down, except mixed martial arts. And, and I will say with the asterisks, um, Major League Baseball, they're trying to do their own thing to try to come back, which is also idiotic. We'll talk about that on a different day. But the UFC is trying to keep on going, and they're trying to push through this at a time where everyone with the expert lens on COVID-19 is saying that this is a, a bad idea at this point in time. So where we are right now is UFC 249 has been, um, it's been confirmed that it will go down at, at Tachi Palace, which is in California. And this is the location where um, the Tachi fights go on. That is a regional promotion that's major in um, the California area, it's, it's a place where a lot of a lot of UFC fighters have come from. A lot of the WEC guys came from that way when that promotion was still around. So it's very it's a popular location. It is on sovereign ground, so basically it's on an Indian reservation. So there is there's no regulation that the United States government can put in place to cancel or or not have the event there. But even in a situation where the uh, United States CDC is basically saying, do not get into groups of 10 where I think almost every state, except for maybe nine, I think are left, have um, stay at home orders in place. And yet UFC President Dana White is still trying to make this happen. And it looks like he's one step closer as we get to being 11 days out from this uh, showcase. So let's start there. So, so Rafi, I have a question. Have you have you covered uh, Tachi Palace fights um, at all? No, I don't think so. Maybe if I did, it would be early in my career. Because I wanted to, I wanted to know what the um, what the regulatory. I mean, obviously, it's not covered by the California State Athletic Commission. So, who's monitoring these fights? And you know, who's making sure that the medicals are being done and that the officials are are selected, you know, I mean, all of the, all of the stuff that goes with a sanctioned event, Yeah, um, it, you know, it, it can't possibly be sanctioned by the CSAC because they're not sanctioning any events. No. So this works like if the UFC was in another country and they are self-regulating. So it's the same situation there where they pick their own judges, pick their own medical professionals, and they, and they go through all of those steps. But the question that everyone's asking, like, that's a great question. That's a question that everyone's asking and no one's, well, that's a question that some people who are concerned are asking, but the UFC isn't giving adequate answers to, because clearly we're in a situation right now where medical professionals are flying across the world because there's shortages in major areas like New York, where you are, like in California. So there's that matter that's going on. So it's like, how in the world can the UFC ensure that they will have adequate med medical coverage and no one's answering that question? Dana White is speaking anecdotally, 
in reference to it, um, kind of skirting around the outer outer edge. But even that, that's not enough to really get dive into the matter. So like, that's a good first question to really pop off off pop off with because it's a serious situation and that no one's really kind of looking at at this point in time. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate that ESPN is is clearly in bed with the UFC in this in this respect because that's where we we would expect to see a lot of the reporting um, in the days leading up to the event. You know, they have the resources to get to the people that they need to get to in order to get those questions answered. And we're actually going to talk about that because we got a we we got a question to um, that really kind of reference that. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll get to that at at um, a point in the show. So UFC 249, it's a go. Um, we're going to do a card preview probably next week as we get closer to that. But Justin Gaethje and uh, Tony Ferguson are fighting now for the interim lightweight title. Uh, let's get some initial thoughts around that. Shwan, we talked about this last week and I didn't put it on the agenda. So it kind of slipped at that point there. We talked about this last week as the fight kind of started bubbling up. What are your thoughts about this fight now that it's official and that it's being built around an interim title that Tony Ferguson had at one time, but he never really lost? Well, my first thoughts are once again, Tony Ferguson is getting screwed. He, his interim title amounted to nothing. He had a fight where Khabib couldn't make it. And so instead of them remaking the fight, they moved on to, they gave him another fight and had Khabib fight someone else. And once again, Khabib's not going to be able to make the fight for whatever reason. I mean, I understand, but still, it doesn't matter to Tony Ferguson. He's still getting shortchanged in this. And once again, they're having him face another, you know, high-level guy instead of facing Khabib. And once again, it's for an interim title that past history has shown him carries no weight whatsoever. So if my first regard is Tony Ferguson is, is getting played in this and win or lose, he's doing what all MMA fighters do. They're doing favors for billionaires. The UFC wants to make this happen. Tony Ferguson isn't going to step in and make sure it happens. And the only person who has something to lose in this is Tony Ferguson. Justin Gaethje loses nothing if he loses, win or lose. Tony Ferguson has a guaranteed title shot that will go up in smoke if he loses. And considering who he's fighting, even if he wins, uh, you don't just walk away from a Justin Gaethje fight and take another fight three months later or six months later. There's, There's a certain price you have to pay for that. So, so that's, um, that's where I wanted to interject. On the off chance, on the off chance that Tony Ferguson can win and escape unscathed, he's got a little bit of a lottery ticket, uh, in the sense that you know Khabib's going to have to uh, rest for Ramadan, right? And that usually goes until I believe the fall. Theoretically, he could cash in his his uh, red panty ticket and put that interim title on the line against Conor McGregor and get himself a payday. Yeah, in theory, if he was a different fighter or a smarter one, yeah, he, he could he could he go he could get out of unscathed. But and I've said this I've said this to multiple trainers. I said this to tons of people who know Tony Ferguson. Ferguson's problem isn't that he doesn't have skill. This is, first of all, this is a bad style matchup for him. Because the first thing Tony Ferguson does in every single fight he engages in, watch the film, he engages you at the range, at the pace, and the style you want to fight at. That's what he does, because he's not trying to beat people. It's like Michael Irvin said, you attack a man's weaknesses to beat him, you attack his strengths to break him. Tony Ferguson is always trying to break people, but in the process of doing this, he always exposes himself to getting finished by by a good competition. When he fought Donald Cerrone, he was get, he was taking punishment. When he fought um, 
Oh, God, I can't forget that guy. Lando Venata, he almost got knocked out. When he fought Anthony Pettis, he almost got knocked out. And I, and I understand he comes back and he always wins these fights, but he does a tightrope act, and he forces himself into bad situations that he doesn't have to be in. And against a guy with Gaethje's kind of power and Gaethje's kind of physicality, those are situations you can't afford to get into. In fact, the only reason I think he beats Gaethje is because Gaethje's going to have to cut a lot of weight to make this fight. But even in cutting a lot of weight to make the fight, he's going to have to get through those first one or two rounds. And Tony not only is really bad defensively, the fact is he doesn't spar a lot anymore, which means his timing and his distancing is always off early, early on a fight. That's why he applies so much pressure. And you're going to apply pressure against one of the biggest hitters and one of the best finishers in the world. Mm, looks like a recipe for disaster for me, but, you know, what do I know? Ferguson is 36 years of age, and, you know, there is a point where fighters begin to, to decline. You don't see it so much at heavyweight, but lightweight is one of the um, weight is one of the groups where you do see that drop off and you see that drop off quick. Like look up, look at what Frankie Edgar is going through and he's around the same age. I think he actually might be younger than um, Tony Ferguson. So are we headed into a situation where Justin, Justin Gaethje lands a big shot and proverbially blows up this whole, um, this whole plan for a Ferguson Tony fight potentially later on this year. What do you think about that, Mike? I think it's highly likely. I mean, based on everything that Shawan just said, if, I mean, if he can survive a firefight with Gaethje, which it, it itself kind of a 50-50 proposition, then he's, he's only taking years off of his career and he's only taking notches off his belt in terms of an eventual fight against Khabib. And at this point, I, was, I wasn't favoring him against Khabib to begin with, but it, I don't necessarily think that he can get out of get out of three rounds with with Gaethje, you know, fighting the way that he fights, not particularly defensively oriented. If he's going to stand in there and just try to put on a show for the fans, it's going to be a fun show for us, but it's going to be a short show. And what about you, Sean? Do you think that this fight is going to end swiftly? Uh, I mean, if it engages favored, it needs to end quickly. I mean, like it, it's like I said, I'm going to just echo the same thing I said before. He doesn't spar very often, which means his timing and distance is going to be off. He likes to press guys. And defensively, he's never been very sound. And the fact of the matter, everybody talks about his volume and his pace. Well, he has to fight like that. He doesn't hit all that hard. He really doesn't. As, as much as he lands on people, if he had real punching power, guys would have chalk outlines walked around him. He doesn't really knock anybody out. I mean, he beats them up. He breaks them down over the – over the distance, but he, when, when's the last time Tony Ferguson just walked through somebody? When's the last time Tony Ferguson fought somebody and he didn't get rocked, stunned, or pushed back by strikes in the first couple rounds by somebody? It's always later on in the fight he turns it on. Kevin Lee, Anthony Pettis, Donald Cerrone, Michael Johnson, it goes, the list goes on and on. It, it's happened almost the entirety of his career. So Johnson's I, I just, the only one that really has one punch knockout power out of the, the, all the names that you gave. Exactly. It's like he, he he's gets hit and he's getting pushed back by people who aren't aren't big hitters. And what's going to happen when he faces a big, a real big hitter? I understand the wrestling aspect of it, but in my estimation, Tony isn't nearly the wrestler people out to make him make him out to be. A lot of his wrestling is on the defensive side. I mean, when's the last time he's come out and just wrestled somebody right off the bat? That literally never happens. And most of the guys he's been wrestling aren't really great athletes, aren't really physical, and don't have wrestling backgrounds either. Last time he really faced a guy with a wrestling background, he got out wrestled. Danny Castillo out-wrestled him. I mean, I think Tony's very good. He's already breaking down. He's had a lot of injuries in the past year or two. 
And um, I don't think he's the athlete. He's never been a great athlete. He's even less of a great athlete as he's in decline. He's not a great defensive fighter. And he's a guy who doesn't spar to keep his tools real sharp. That's a real bad recipe. I don't, I don't see this fight really going past three rounds. And that's being generous. If it does, it's up, it's up for grabs. Because Gaethje can't possibly be in the best shape possible. And he, I don't think Gaethje can handle a high-level wrestling back-and-forth scrambling type fight. He's been scared of it when he's been prepared. I think he still has concerns about it. But the question is, can Tony fight a disciplined, defensively sound fight for the first three rounds? And even when he's winning fights, he's never been really hard to hit. So I, I don't see this fight going past three rounds. If it does, it's even money. But this is probably the worst stylistic matchup you could have for someone like Tony Ferguson. The, a guy who hits really hard, is really aggressive, will not be scared off by counters, and a guy who likes to attack the legs and attack the body with kicks. Tony's a long, long gangly guy, and he's, he's, when's the last time he's really taken a lot of leg kicks and body kicks, like routinely? Not often. Most guys are too scared of him. Gaethje's not going to be scared of him, and that's going to be the difference. So let's talk about the ramifications of this as well, too, because uh, UFC President Dana White was talking today, and as always, you know, he continues to kind of answer without answer, answering about what's next for Conor McGregor. What does this mean for him and Khabib Nurmagomedov? So obviously we know that um, Khabib takes his time out for Ramadan, which is what he, he celebrates every year, and he doesn't fight until around like, the September time frame. So looking at Dana's comments, it makes it seem like the next fight for Khabib is, is Conor, regardless of how this fight plays out. And then the winner of UFC 249's main event faces the, the champion of the Conor McGregor, uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov Madoff rematch. Does that make sense to either one of, of you guys? Mike, I'm going to throw it to you first. And if so, why do you agree or disagree with that matchmaking plan? See, I sort of disagree. I think that if, you know, obviously a lot of good things have to happen in the UFC's favor, but let's say Gaethje just goes out there and blows Tony Ferguson's doors off. If I'm anyone in Gaethje's camp, I'm calling out both Conor McGregor and Khabib Nurmagomedov, right? I know I can't fight Khabib until the fall, but why not take the big payday? And, it's, you know, if you just blew, you just blew apart the guy on the 12 fight winning streak you know you try to get that fight in the summertime in you know maybe not maybe not quite fourth of july weekend i don't know when international fight week is but if you you know maybe you can get that fight on an even bigger stage against one of the biggest stars in the sport and set yourself up for the biggest fight of the year against khabib you know with with a coming off of a win over conor mcgregor you know, you try to make that fight for October or even November, you give Khabib as much time to prepare as he needs after coming off of Ramadan. And you know, now you're the superstar. Now you're the, the A side of the fight uh, with those with those big, big wins with everyone's eyes on you. And that's very true there, sir. Swan, what do you think about that matchmaking plan? Would that be something that you expect to see? Or do you think we're going to go in a separate direction based on the outcome of UFC 249? Well, if Justin wins, him and Khabib, if I'm not correct, are represented by the same guy, right? Um, Ali? Um, I think I think he represents both of them. Yeah, Ali, yeah. So if I'm, if I'm him, I don't worry about Khabib. Khabib's going to be there at any point, we're represented by the same guy. That fight's easy to make. If I'm Justin, the only person I'm calling out, especially knowing Khabib's not gonna fight anytime soon, is Conor McGregor. You just call him out straight out. I don't worry about Khabib. 
we have the same management. That fight can be made at any time. I, I'm not I'm not even worried about that fight. I just call out Connor. If Connor doesn't call him out immediately, to be honest, Justin Gaethje, out of the the guys in the top three, top four of the division, Justin Gaethje is the most favorable matchup for Conor McGregor. He's a guy who can wrestle, but doesn't. A guy who comes forward, throws volume, throws the power, likes a leg kick. That's basically in Conor's wheelhouse. That's the best possible matchup he could get against an elite guy. And now this elite guy will also be the interim lightweight champion who will have a chance to defend that belt before the, uh, the actual lightweight champion will have a chance to defend the belt. So if Connor gets his hands on a belt, interim or not, the machine goes over goes into over overdrive and the UFC does big business because now Khabib can't dance around fighting Connor because he said Connor's got to beat elite guys to get back to me. I'm not rematching Connor. If Connor takes out Justin, who took out Tony, and Tony took out eleven guys before that, in the scale of two fights, Connor McGregor will have instantly put made himself the best challenger for Khabib. And there will be nothing anybody can do about it. And to be let, honest, let's, we saw that fight with just Dustin and Khabib. Dustin didn't, didn't put up as good a fight as, as Connor. It wasn't anywhere close. So a lot of people are still saying Connor's elite because the guy who was considered one of the best guys got mocked, and Connor actually had moments against Khabib. And if Connor stops Justin Gaethje, he's going to have the interim belt, he'll have all that momentum, the machine's going to go into overdrive, and they will force Khabib's hand into having the, t- the title shot, or Khabib's going to have to give up the title, in which case Connor will say that Khabib's running from a rematch. So the only thing for Justin Gaethje to do is call out Connor. Don't worry about the Khabib fight. That's going to be there anytime, every time. You go for the money. You go for a chance to defend your belt. Because if he beats Connor, then that fight with Khabib's even bigger between Justin and Khabib. But if he loses to Connor, then the fight, the rematch between Khabib will definitely happen. Khabib and Connor, and it'll be huge. Only person you call out is Connor McGregor. I'm not taking anything else except Connor. He wanted Connor before. Now he's got something Connor wants. And I fully think that Connor would sign off for that fight. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. So I want to move on to the next piece of this, which is just as big, where basically we're headed for a world where Mortal Kombat becomes a real thing. <laughs> UFC President Dana White, again on TMZ last night around 10, 30, 11 o'clock, came out that he's close to securing a private island where fights will be going on every week, according to him, for at least two months. If he's now, not, sorry to cut you off. If he's not calling it Octagon Island, he's missing out on the biggest branding opportunity. You know, y'all do know there's going to be a reality show coming off of this. They they need to bring back the Ultimate Fighter, and and put it on Octagon Island, and they they they're, they can now turn the Ultimate Fighter into Survivor. Listen, I've seen way too many movies. I've been, I'm 36 years old. I've been playing Mortal Kombat for too long to know that anytime a promoter gets a bunch of fighters and flies them out to a secluded island somewhere, shit never turns out well for the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, is Shao Khan to be stepping through a portal with an army of Baraka looking jokers coming out and know that we're all fucked and <laughs> ain't nobody gonna be fighting for us. So, but in all, in all intents and purposes, this can't be a good idea, right? Um, it it has it's given us you know uh, battle royale, Hunger Games vibes, but I mean we're already in 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 our in our weird pandemic world where we're stuck looking out and through our TV screens. So I say serve it up. I mean throw a little Running Man in there. You know every dystopian uh, nightmare scenario might as well play out. 
why not bring the best fighters in the world uh, to a private island where they have no escape except uh, violence? Sure. Well, this thing, it, it really just is going to enable Dana because the fact of the matter is everything else is gone. Basketball, football, baseball, soccer, boxing, everything is gone. So once again, he's going to sell this two ways. One, this is the reason why everybody pays for all these sports is because live entertainment is, is almost priceless at this stage. Ha having active live, I haven't seen it before. I don't know what's going to happen. Entertainment is invaluable. That's why people pay millions and billions of dollars to get these contracts. He's providing that. NFL doesn't have it. NBA doesn't have it. MLB doesn't have it. Hell, any sport that could get going right now would have all the eyes on it because people would just be wanting to watch something. Any sport could take could plant its flag right now and make steps forward. That's number one. Number two, he's going to spend this is we're the real fighters. We're the real athletes. We're the real gladiators because all the other sports with these millionaires, hundred millionaires, they don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't even want to play basketball. They don't even want to hit the baseball. They don't even want to kick a soccer ball. We're out here fighting, bleeding, wrestling for your entertainment, for you to get to have something to watch. We're willing to sacrifice our health and our well-being so that you have entertainment you have live action to watch and it's going to separate he's trying to see all he's trying to do is separate himself from the other sports and plant a flag and build some uh, curry favor with the casual fan the hardcores are already there curry favor with the casual fans so that when sports start coming around it's going to take time for basketball to ramp back up it's going to take time for football to ramp back up if the ufc never stops then that's just that much further ahead than they are than everybody else and he's hoping that people will remember that moving forward as things get back to normal in the months and years coming it's yeah. a smart plan, but it's somewhat irresponsible, to be honest. Smart. I'm going to jump in there real quick because yeah. I, I got a question for you both. All right. Without looking at what I, I, I just tweeted. So it's come out that if the UFC holds a certain number of events on ESPN this year, like if they provide them with content a certain number of times this year, they get a X amount of money. Guess how much money that is. I'm going to give you both one shot. Mike, you go first. So this is on top of how much they're already contracted for? Correct. This is, okay. So I'm going to say $100 million. Uh, Schwan? Um, I'll say something like, I'll just go crazy. $375, $375 million. If the UFC holds the um, contracted number of events that they are booked for with the uh, with ESPN. Okay, Mike, you said 100, 100 and um, Juan, you said... Uh, 375. I'm going to read you a quote. Disney is paying the UFC no matter what. All the UFC has to do is put on the show to get a minimum, minimum payment. The UFC could earn around $750 million if it puts on the number of contracted events in 2020. Oh right, so that's the that's the that's not a bonus. That's what they're entitled to. Correct, correct. Now, excuse me. Yes, yeah, so it's not a bonus. Basically, so, you're saying that I won. Seven. Well, no, you're both wrong. <laughs> but I was closest, so I won. Yeah. I understood the question though. I thought I thought it was it, that they had a, a minimum. Mike, Mike, don't lie to the fans. I beat you. Let's just move <laughs> on from there. Yeah, but seven fifty. This is what's funny to me is that for years I argued that the UFC 
needed to move away from the pay-per-view model. They need to move somewhere close to where they can just put on fight cards and not have to think about, you know, trying to sell each pay-per-view each month. And they could probably get somewhere between 500 million and a billion dollars if they played their cards right. And here we are living in that world, except this is also a world where irresponsibly they have to, they have to put on fight cards in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. No, they don't have to. The fighters could say no. They don't have to do anything. Well, you would think in a world where, you know, we're, we're comparing UFC to real sports. In a world where the, the athletes know that there's $750 million on the table, they now have leverage. In a no, but, but they're not that smart, though. <laughs> so here's That's here, the problem. Here's yeah. some, some um, true thoughts about this, though. There's the idea that this is something for the United States fan, something for the common man sitting at home, I think that's asinine to really think that way because we know that this is about business. We know that the UFC is trying to do all they can to make as much money as possible. Endeavor is struggling right now from a financial standpoint. If they can do whatever they can to pressure Dana to have these events at any um, cost as needed, they're going to do so. No one in a position to ask him that question has asked him that question in and forced and put him in a position to answer it. And I think that that's clear as day to me that that is telling that this is a financial matter that the, that the parent organization is in trouble and they're putting people in at risk for the bottom line. Are they are they putting the people at risk or are the independent contractors putting themselves at risk? They're making the opportunity for like. Even still, like let's say if they put this fight out there and every contract that UFC fighters said no, we saw that they were willing to go to managers and random. I could have got on a fight card, Schwan. I haven't fought since 2015. If if they were looking that hard to put on a fight, they would have picked put me on a damn card. Rafael, I'm I'm very good. I've worked corners before. I don't know that I'm good enough to get you a UFC win. See, exactly. Like that's how that, that's how far they were willing to go to put this card on. We've seen the emails where they were contacting people at any point trying to get this fight booked. So it's not even about but that, but that but it's the same thing we talked about before. These people, it's like every fighter you listen to and they say, I I'm not the typical stereotype of an idiot fighter. And I'm not saying they're idiots. That's not but then you see them do things like this and you're like, What are you doing? You have leverage, especially at this point, you can put but you can't even put your foot down. Because there's so many people who, who are so blinded and so in love with the three letters UFC, they will take short money, they'll fight a top five guy, they'll do whatever it takes to be on a UFC card. Like, they don't, they, I, I know fighters who told me about their, their teammates who turned down better contracts. They're fighting for eight and eight when they could have been fighting for 17 and 17 to find the UFC. And I'm like, so they're taking a $9,000 cut just to fight in the UFC? Wait, somebody got offered twenty thousand a fight, and he's taking eight thousand a fight. To so, Shawan, here's my, here's my question. You've worked with camps. What what are what are these fighters going to be doing for the people in their camps who have to help prepare them for these fights? Well, in my opinion, they shouldn't be doing anything because these dudes are stealing money. But that's not even here nor there. Um, it's going to be business as usual. I mean, unless for the most part, it should be business as usual. That the camps aren't going to miss out on a payday. 
I mean, to be honest, the fighters aren't going to benefit from this nearly as much as the camps are. They always make the most money out of all this. They get paid aren't first. In states where, well, I guess not Florida, right? Florida is one of those states that don't have the shelter in, at home orders. I mean, you're, you're, you're exposing everyone that you train with to risk by, you know, by rolling every day and sparring every day in the lead up to these fights as well. No, you're right. But the fact of the matter is it's all risk people are willing to take. That's the, that's the thing. That's the thing Dana's going to say was, I didn't twist anybody's arm. There was an opportunity. You took it. Now I might've said that, but it still comes down to adults making decisions. And all these adults are deciding that I need this eight or $10,000 or whatever the hell it is so that I can make a living for myself. That's what, that's what it comes down to. They're making decisions. They, they're making decisions, and to me, they're somewhat irresponsible decisions. And to be quite honest, I, I don't blame them any more than I blame anybody else. A lot of other sports, sporting athletes who are, who are having money problems would probably choose to play rather than miss out on money. But this is where, we at, where we're at right now. And everybody's risking everybody. They're risking their family when they go home. They're risking other people's family, who you rolled with, who you trained with. And the worst part about MMA camps is a lot of them don't pay for their, they have big camps. They don't pay their sparring partners. Their sparring partners get paid an experience and possible opportunity to fight on a big stage. They don't actually get paid. So in twofold, you, you have damage being done twofold. Financially, they could get injured and get hurt and they're not getting paid for it. And secondly, they're risking exposing themselves or their family members to this disease. But nobody cares about that. They just care about they only care about themselves. The fighters only care about themselves until they need to get leverage and they try and bring the other fighters in with them. But the main thing is coming down is these fighters are worried about their payday, their ranking and their opportunities. They're not too concerned with anybody else. Otherwise they wouldn't go ahead and do this and put these other people in that situation. Yeah. I mean, I just, what, what was, I'm fill me in. Like I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Remember a few years back when there was an outbreak in, in the gyms, of um, of like a skin dis a skin disease. Um, do you guys remember that? I mean, it was well. There, there's been a couple actually. There was one this past year. I thought I had it um, around the time of ADCC. Um, it's called ECK. It was a eye disease. That's that's different than the one you're talking about, Michael. You're talking about when staff really broke out really badly. But um, there was one this year, man. I thought I had it when it, it was a e ECK is like a version of pink eye that gets so bad you basically go blind. But if and no one knows how that spread as quickly as, as it did. It started. Um, it really got out of control around the um, time of ADCC, which was last September. But once one person gets it, and if they go to the gym, everybody got it. It's that simple. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, to the extent that we were joking about Octagon Island, if I remember, those were for the international fighters. So these are countries that have varying levels of of or of uh, orders in place from terms of quarantines and they could be in violation of their quarantines going to the gym and being exposing themselves not just to the to the disease itself but to criminal penalties i i don't know man i don't know how it's how this is all going to work out logistically you know they're they're banking a lot on on things changing for the good uh, very quickly and for you know the trends at least here or that they're getting, you know, they're getting worse. Yeah, I definitely think that um, I was just having a conversation and based on a lot of the modeling that we're, we're seeing, I mean, people are expected to be in lockdown from June to 
uh, from June to like all the way August, September. So we'll see what happens when um, that time really comes. Let's let's continue with some different, I wanna look at some quotes sure. um, around this situation that Dana White said during his interview with Brett Okamoto and get some of your thoughts on, on, on this situation. So this one kind of stood out to me where he came to Khabib Nurmagomedov's defense, where he said, Khabib was caught in the middle of this thing as the world continued to change day by day, and I was trying to book venues. It's not Khabib's fault. It's, in, it's not anybody's fault. This is something you can never uh, prepare for, plan for, or even dream that any of this is possible. What are your thoughts on his statement to finally come to the defense of his lightweight champion days after everybody was dragging him through the mud? I, uh, Mike, you can go ahead and go first. Sure. I mean, I think this is one of the rare times that Dane is self-aware. He knows that he's about to put all these fighters in peril beyond measure. And he knows that they're going to be, that he's got to build up some kind of goodwill before he does that. And one of the things that you can say is that it's no hard feelings to your champion who you will later in the year be asking to fight, um, you know, against either the winner of the fight or the winner of, you know, two fights down the line. You know, Khabib has, has the moral high ground here. And Khabib has, has already demonstrated that quote unquote fighter's mentality. You know, when he had that quote going around, just tell me where, where I need to fight. I mean, you have to be a real chump keyboard warrior, one of the sort of lowest forms of human life to see that and say, oh, well, Khabib's, Khabib's scared. Khabib was running from, from a fight. Um, so I think it's just a matter of Dana being self-aware enough to know that he can't go full troll. Um, at least right now, he can't. He can sort of save that for when he has an interim champion. And then he can start, you know, floating, floating sort of side, uh, side talk about how this guy is the guy and Khabib doesn't want to face this guy or whatever, whatever Dana, Dana-ism that he chooses to engage in. I think now's the time to be somewhat diplomatic, even as you're embarking upon one of the most misguided efforts in sports history, uh, at least recent sports history. Well, it's only going to be misguided if anything goes wrong. If, for some, if in some form or fashion, he's able to pull all this off without any major event or major issue because me, me and Raphael talked about this last week that if somebody came down with something if the UFC could kind of you know maybe offer some money or guarantee some fights so that somebody else would just keep quiet about it because so that there wouldn't be any public outcry or public outroar because that if somebody comes up with something after uh, one of these events it's it's quite the shot to the UFC and I think a lot of guys would love to be on Dana's good side or be on you know, the, or whoever is running things that want to be on their good side and they might be willing to shut the fuck up just to make sure they keep their spot or if they're guaranteed a higher level opponent. So if nothing goes wrong, then Dana took a risky gambit, but one that'll be talked about for years and years and years to come is, is the time when mixed martial arts really put its foothold into the social consciousness. I mean, People will talk about the time when there was no baseball, there was no boxing, there was no wrestling, there was no soccer, but there was still mixed martial arts. That carries some weight historically and in the minds of fans. It's going to carry some weight. So I, I think that's what he's 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 banking on. Um, as far as him being self-aware, I don't think he's self-aware. 
when you have certain fighters, he always watches what he says to a certain degree with certain fighters. He didn't talk. He never talked to Ronda the way he talked to Cyborg. He never talked to Connor the way he talked to Tito. You know, when a guy has a certain amount of popularity and a certain amount of blowback can come back on him, he watches what he says just a little bit more than normal. Not because he's scared, but just because he doesn't need the drama. He doesn't want to have to defend himself and step over a line and put himself in a position where he's going to have to answer to a, a moneymaker or someone who's who's got the fans on his side. So I don't know if it's being self-aware past the point of just defending his bottom line. I don't think he he's changed at all. I think he's thinks one thing and once it becomes advantageous for him to come a certain kind of way, then he'll come that way. Until then, he's just going to, you know, sit back on the sideline. But he's always done that. He's, he's done that with every fighter he has. Certain people he talks crazy to, other people he watches what he says. And that, that's always been his, his modus operandi. Very, very, very thoughtful there. Um, one other question I want to post is, everybody is going to be, or this is a quote from Dana White when he spoke to Brett um, Okamoto, everybody is going to be pre-tested and tested and tested. We're going to make sure that what, we're going to make sure that 100% healthy athletes, healthy athletic commission people, healthy judges, referees, my production people, that everybody is healthy. We're going to make sure that everybody is safe before, during, and after the fights. Now, this stands out to me specifically because of, you know, we just watched uh, WrestleMania this past weekend, and at least two fighters, or two fighters, excuse me, two wrestlers that were scheduled to be on that car were pulled off in the week of because they were, quote, unquote, sick. Um, another one was, uh, was supposedly injured. I think he was also ill, too. But... I have so many questions around the UFC's ability to test when as a country, we're still struggling to test. But I will say one thing, he does have a um, friend in, in Donald Trump and at the White House. So I would not be surprised if that has helped him get some sort of testing in place for this event here, especially after getting off of the phone with Donald Trump and other sports commissioners this past weekend. Do you believe that the UFC is going to be able to test at this level that he's, he's promising? No, I think it's. I think he's lying. I mean, or at least exaggerating. Is his mouth moving? What did you say? I said, is his mouth moving? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, but what, what? I have a question about WrestleMania. You follow wrestling a lot more closely than I do. Um, were the were the performers sequestered in the lead up to WrestleMania? So there's there's there hasn't been any um statement around that. All we know is that the same handful of individuals have been on the shows for the last two to three weeks and there's some individuals who have been pulled off meaning they haven't been on tv at all so i believe there is some of that going on but no one has asked or answered that question visibly yet okay because because you know obviously the 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 factor with fighters as opposed to pro wrestlers is that it's a much smaller universe of 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 wrestlers to put on a show and to put on repeated shows, you know, than for fighters that are, you know, just be, you can put on potentially one show, but if you're trying to put on a whole battery of shows over the next couple months, we're talking about, you know, 20, 60, 80, 100 fighters, and then all the people that they come into contact with in the lead up and in the aftermath of the fights. Even if in order for, I, I know there's been some experimental tests that supposedly can get you a, 
a somewhat reliable result inside of a few hours. But those tests are going to be very expensive. And I doubt that they're going to be able to test people on a daily basis or, or even multiple times a day based on, you know, the activity that they're engaged in, which is the kind of exaggeration that Dana would love to engage in. Sure. If we're saying that will everyone be tested once at some point? Yeah, probably. Uh, everyone that's competing, not necessarily their camps, not necessarily their corners, not necessarily any person that they could come into contact with from the time they touch down in California to the time they leave California. I mean, all think about all the different vectors of infection that could set in if they're not being sequestered between the time that they're that between their tests. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that I was listening to some, some of the floated ideas for what they were trying to do in other sports, and they were trying to create a closed environment, essentially putting everyone in the same place for a couple weeks where they can't have any outside contact, testing them in the beginning, testing them after a couple of weeks, you know, during the time that the virus is supposedly, um, you know, pat in that um, in that gestation period, and 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 monitoring people before they even think about putting them into competition. This isn't; these aren't the levels of precautions that we're going to see in place for the UFC, and we know we all know this. We just know that Dana's going to talk the talk, and like you said, Shawan, he's not. The people who would be a whistleblower, who would be whistleblowers, have a financial incentive not to be. And it's only going to be when someone, if someone, you know, close to them, in their immediate family gets infected, that you're going to start seeing that economic incentive uh, sort of flip. Yeah, we're definitely in a very different situation. Um, even so much so, so much to the point where the Association of Ringside uh, Physicians are making the statement that fights should not be happening at this point in time. So we have some questions, uh, and we'll kind of, and I'll leave that to, to the listeners, to the listen, no, excuse me, the listener question section. But we have a, we have a couple of different questions in reference to this. That is all. Everyone is really talking about, but I do have one other topic for us to talk about today um, in reference to this show, and that is uh, in reference to one Anthony Smith. I'm not sure if either one of you guys saw his story today. Uh, I think it was today, or it was yesterday? It was today. It was yesterday. I, I only saw the headline. I didn't actually dive into the details, so uh, you know, feel free to fill me in. But this guy, I mean, we all know Anthony Smith is a tough, tough um, SOB. He fights in the UFC, he fought for the title, but he was in a real life and death situation where he had to fight off a home intruder where his family, him, I think it's his wife and his two daughters and his mother-in-law all in the home. And some of his quotes are just like telling, like it's, re it's really interesting. Like he, um, he talks about running at, at the guy him and his wife wake up to some random guy in their home at 4 a.m. screaming at the top of his lungs. So, do you, do you know what state this was in? Uh, Nebraska. Okay. Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, he talks about having to tackle the guy and basically 
tussle with him, beating him up for six minutes until the police officers get there. And from his description, it's it, it makes me sound like this guy had to be strung out on something because one one quote is um one quote that was telling to me is this is Anthony Smith saying was I was shocked he was able to absorb the punishment. Honestly, I don't even care. I'll tell you the truth. I was trying to crack his skull, elbows and punches and dropping knees like I was quitting Rampage Jackson. It was everything I had. I gave him everything I had until I realized he didn't have a weapon, and that's when I backed off a little. For those first few minutes, when I thought he had something, he got 110% of everything Anthony Smith has, and he was conscious at the end of it. He fought me the whole time. He never stopped. This guy had to be on something. Yeah, probably. I mean, that's probably what his impetus was for breaking in the house in the first place. And it really, it, like, this is something telling to me. Sean, you work in a, in, a, in a lot of gyms that had to deal with that. Have you ever had to talk to someone who's had to fight for their lives, a fighter who's had to fight for their lives, and how have they really de uh, described it? Uh, something similar. I had a friend who used to uh, do security these, I guess I want to say, like, they were projects. I don't know why, but he basically, somebody was strung out of something, and he, he used to be an amateur boxer, did a little bit of pro, but even as an amateur, he knocked a lot of people out, and a guy attacked him, and he was telling me, he was like bombing on this dude. He's like, I've never hit somebody so often and so clean in my life, because, you know, untrained people don't, don't know how to react when they get hit, and he's like, I'm just teeing off on this guy, and it's doing nothing. Like, I'm hitting him, we're bouncing off of stuff, and I'm still hitting him, nothing. It, what ended up happening is the guy tackled him down the stairs and I guess the guy he passed out from the strain or passed out or something happened where his body was just exhausted and totally collapsed on him. My friend was basically pinned underneath this dude for a couple minutes, but he said he's hitting him left and right. And the guy was not slowing down, barely backing up. He couldn't keep the guy off him and he thought he was pretty much going to die. I mean, yeah, like Anthony, Anthony Smith is tough. Good in there with Glover Teixeira. He's beating him. He fought off um, John Jones, even though he lost that fight for an extended period of time. This dude's tough. He's tough as nails. But to see this um, story definitely really kind of stood out to me because it let me know just how human everyone is, even fighters. You know, they could be horrified in a situation like this when you think that they would be best suited to handle it. And it, it's, it's pretty... Um, We've seen stories like this. I've I've had individuals that I've trained with and taught talked about having to fight um, home intruders. So this is something that stood out to me that I just wanted to talk about um, because it, it was a pretty big headline on in what's been a quiet time in MMA outside of the uh, UFC UFC 249 developments. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody keeps thinking the fighters are impervious because they're they're not scared in this cage but i'm like them being not being nervous in a cage is the same thing as you not being nervous giving have having to do a uh, project or a speech in front of your job it's what you do all the time so of course you're totally calm kobe, kobe bryant rest in peace wasn't nervous on the court because that's where he always is you have somebody break into his house kobe bryant might freak out just because you engage in a sport of violence does not mean you are prepared or totally calm in a situation where unexpected violence is happening. And that guy could have had a knife, could have had a gun, could have had other people in there who would have beat the crap out of him. He, I mean, he had no idea what was going on. He was just trying to think as a father and a husband, how am I going to protect my family? What happens if they get past me? You know, I'm the only person capable of really defending myself. What happens if they get past me? So, you know, as a person with kids and family, I, I understand that completely. And I understand him being scared because that's, that's not his environment. You know, that's more like a cop or a guy who goes to war. He might be more prepared for something like that because that's 
circumstance that they kind of work around. But a fighter, no, it's you don't train for people to come in your house at four in the morning screaming, possibly having weapons. You, who trains for that? Well, yeah, some people train. Some people train for that. I, I take that back. Yeah. And it kind of it kind of bums me out, you know, because obviously we know him as a longtime UFC fighter. But you know, as as mentioned earlier, these are independent contractors, so it's not like he's going to be provided with any kind of mental health resources for you know how to start talking about like what he just experienced and any potential kind of like PTSD that he might have uh, after experiencing that. Yeah, yeah it's definitely going to be some um, struggles after that we don't really know how that is going to um play out so let's talk about some listener questions we have um and, and you know this is all going to be ufc 249 and what did you call it octagon island um, <laughs> yeah octagon island so the first question we have is what does this say about the sport of mma as a whole as other um sports are shutting down you see Dana White pushing forward in this matter here. And you see fighters literally um, cheering him on. I saw an interesting post today from Michelle Watterson talking about how he has such great heart or grit, whatever the word she used. And I'm like, Michelle, he just overlooked you for a title shot not even six months ago because he claimed you didn't want to fight when he wanted you to fight. But it's, it's interesting that that response is still going on. What does this say as, about the sport of MMA as a whole. Um, Mike, I'm gonna throw it to you first. I mean, I think I think first and foremost, what it says is that these fighters don't have anyone, any sort of overarching organization looking out for their best interest. So once they're, once you accept that and go into that line of work as a fighter, you realize how much is based on the whims and the mentality of one man. You know, well, you know, if you fight for the UFC specifically, so, you know, you have to cultivate this image. You have to, you know, kind of steel yourself and mentally prepare yourself for the idea that the only thing you get in this world is through fighting. Whereas other professional athletes, they're professionals. They're, it's a job. It's a business. And it's about the long term over the short term. And, you know, when you, even when there are, might be an individual athlete, you know, someone might mention a football player that has financial issues. Even if there's one football player, the needs of the, the many, the union, are going to step in and protect him from himself. You know, they're not going to have uh, one person's kind of uh, rah-rah uh, mentality kind of overshadow the fact that that these are these are athletes, these are people, these are uh, adults, that have families, that have responsibilities, that have bigger concerns than the sport. It's about context and, you know, and, and, or, or perspective rather. And unfortunately, everything about the sport and the way it's marketed is, is, is pretending that that's not there. You know, it's pretending that the most important thing is to fight. And people say they want to die in the cage. They're willing to lay, lay it all on the line. All, all, you know, all, all the, um, you know, the, the, the lip service to you know to these mentalities and you know it's it's a shame because i think that there are fans that are looking at the sport through the lens of spectacle so they don't care and you know the fans that do try to bring it more in line with the way other athletes are viewed and the way the sports other sports are viewed 
we're looked at as as the weird ones, you know. What about you, Shawan? What does it say about the sport of MMA as we watch this break out? It's not really a sport. It's like sports entertainment. It's like wrestling without a predetermined end. You have a sport where rankings don't matter. It doesn't matter who you beat. It matters when you beat them and how the, co- how the owner feels about you and how the fans feel about you. As I said last week, the, the NFL would have loved to have the Cowboys face the New England Patriots at some part of the 2000s. It never happened because the Cowboys couldn't win. They couldn't just put the Cowboys in the Super Bowl, even though they lost in the first round of the playoffs. They would love to, but they couldn't. At, at one point, Super Bowl, just have an interim Super Bowl. Right? Yeah, or, or, or that when they had the chance to have Kobe face LeBron in the finals. Do you know how much the NBA wanted that? Do you know how bad the NBA wanted that? And they didn't get it because LeBron got knocked out in the finals, uh, knocked out in the Eastern Conference finals. That's just what happened. But in, in, in mixed martial arts, you make up the rules as they go. People get paid a certain amount. People get, people be the top contender and then, and then have to, to fight the number 17th ranked guy in the division. People go on five win five fight win streaks and actually have to fight another fight <laughs> to get to a title. Somebody loses the fight and they get to the title fight. It It's just borderline lunacy. And it's like Michael said, it's like they're just living up to the image. The Im- and, and I tell fighters, you can't say these things because people are going to start taking you seriously. And then when you backtrack, people are going to act like you're suspect for backing off. You can't say that I'd rather, I want to die in the cage. That's not true. You're lying. I would do this for free. That is also not true. You are lying. This isn't a business. Stop saying these things because you say these things and then you get mad at fans when they parrot them back to you. Or you get mad when another fighter calls you out for not having heart or being a quitter. Like the fighters sabotage themselves. They empower the fans to sabotage them. And this is just yet another example of how incredibly unprofessional this sport is run and how selfishly the sport is run. Because these fighters who can't pay their bills are willing to put not just their opponent, but their training partners, the staff, everybody else at risk so they can make $10,000, $15,000 and then complain about it after the event. Because you know that's coming. Every time the event, Dana, please give me a bonus. You You shouldn't even be out there fighting. But it's not run like a real sport, even though they keep advertising is a real sport they try to toe that the tiptoe on that line that we're a real sport but we're also blood sport you're not a blood sport and you're not a real sport you're like sports entertainment and that's the only way you can look at these fights without some sort of measure of hesitancy or negativity is if you look at it sports entertainment because if you look at it this is a real sport this is terrible this is terrible for the all fighters involved and all camps involved the only person this isn't terrible for is dana white and i don't know where everybody keeps telling me how tough dana is and what gritty shows he's a promoter what, 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 why do y'all keep telling me how tough he is and how much he knows? He doesn't know any more than I do. In fact, I know he doesn't know any more than I do. I, I, I don't know that he's tougher than I am. I don't know that he's tougher than anybody on this phone call. I don't know why the fighters just feel the need to just, I don't know, cozy up to him, kisses. Maybe it's because they don't have a union. Maybe it's because they don't have someone to stand up and protect them for themselves or make sure they get treated right. But for some reason, it's run more like a frat house and a club than it is a professional sport. And I, for one, just get irritated with it. Yeah, well said. Thoughts there. So the next question we have is, where is ESPN on this matter, and why haven't they said anything? Because they need oh, – before y'all go, I just got to say this. Fox Sports is kicking themselves right now because they have no live contact. And you, if you think ESPN is about to ask questions when they're about to have, be the only channel with live content, you are nuts. They are not going to say a damn thing. Well, I think Fox is airing a whole bunch of esports now. Yeah, that's great. This is live actual sports sport. I mean, those things will get numbers, 
but this is different. This is like sports sport. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame though because I understand that Disney overall, their big parent, ESPN's parent company, they need revenue. Like everyone needs revenue right now, but it ESPN's towing a line too. They they have to position themselves as where real sports are. And and I think that if anything happens on their watch, if anything, you know, people are gonna gonna look to them as complicit. They're the ones that are paying the money. They could easily say, hey, look, it's a weird situation right now. We can prorate uh, what our what our event fees are in terms of, or event responsibilities are, or we could roll it over for the next year. And you know, you, you're still eligible for payouts on the deal. So, you know, to the extent that there's money coming to fighter, or in fact, what they could say is, you know, we're going to mandate that any fighter that fights on these cards uh, gets some kind of hazard pay um, because of what the, the risk that they're putting in. They have a lot of say because they're the ones that are really providing the purse strings. And, you know, maybe they want to, maybe because the average person doesn't know about that, they're kind of being quiet about it. But I can tell you, as if something goes wrong, they're gonna, everyone's going to follow the money. That's how it always works. Yeah, but even if everybody follows the money, it's like, it's like I have kids, and let's say they play for this team, and they make all this money. Like, this team gets a lot of attention. It's a summer team or whatever. If something happens to my kids, or I know my kids are at risk, and they get hurt, I can kind of sort of blame the team, but they're still going to look at me, the parent. In this, in this role, Dana White is actually the parent. It doesn't go on unless he says so, because he can put a halt to this. Before he is spent, he can say, hell no, we ain't doing nothing. I'm protecting my fighters. I'm getting everybody paid. The hell with this. He could say that. He's not going to. So the first person you go to is the person who runs the show. I mean, if ESPN doesn't get to dictate, doesn't get to dictate how the how the UFC paces their shows, they don't get to dictate the matchups, they don't get to dictate any of this stuff. Why the hell am I going to ESPN first? Because the the deal with the UFC is they they do their show and they run it the way they want to. Every platform they've had has allowed them to do that. So why the hell am I going after the platform when that's the deal and that's the way it's been set up? I go after the people who consistently done it the way they want to, who consistently don't ask questions, don't answer questions, who consistently have chosen not to pay people and instead force in the fight. I mean, I might go to ESPN eventually, but I'm not going to them first. Just like if something happened to my kids, ain't nobody going to the coach first. They're going to me. Why'd you even let them go to the game, dude? That's true. But at the end of the day, if you if you can't turn it turn to ESPN and see the fight, then their incentive goes away. If ESPN said we won't be televising this, yeah, but see that that's the same thing as like when and no offense, it's gonna offend somebody, but I'll just say men and women. But for this, I'm not a good woman, so I'm gonna say for women. So when women say, well, if all men were good, we wouldn't have to go through all this stuff. So basically, well, basically. I'm gonna stop. Nope. I'm, not gonna I'm sorry. You. I'm sorry. I'm stop you right there. <laughs> I'm not even gonna let you do it to yourself, sir. We're gonna move on. I'm not. <laughs> not today. Not today. It'll get the views up. <laughs> the comments will be crazy. Last question we got is: What is the long-term impact of this matter? What do we think it's gonna do to MMA as a whole? Will we see a surge in interest, or is this going to shine a light on just how 
much of a circus this sport can really be. So I think it's all, I think that's going to determine, I think that's going to be based on uh, whether it's the difference between the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. You know, the best case scenario is that nobody gets infected that we know of. Nobody dies. Nobody's family dies. Nobody gets seriously hospitalized. There's no bad publicity. And instead, what we get are super exciting uh, knockouts and viral moments and just everyone's happy that we tuned in on a Saturday night and we got some sports and we all, you know, we get hyped for the next event and it, and they just continue to put on events and no, and there are no bad outcomes in any of these events that they put on. And this goes on for three to six months. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that somewhere along the course of these next three to six months, someone gets really sick and it's, tied into the fact that they went to or they were participating in or they were preparing someone for participating in a UFC event when the whole rest of the civilized world, particularly the civilized sports world, was pulling back in terms of protecting the people uh, that participate in the sport and the people who support the people who participate in the sport. I mean, this is the high risk, high reward uh, game that they're playing. If it if it works out for them, then the UFC earns their reputation for being the toughest SOBs in the sporting world. And Dana White gets to you know tout himself as the visionary that had the guts when no one else did. And rest assured that the person that we have in the White House right now will be shouting him out as well. Um, but it, it remains to be seen. We're going to be looking in probably on a, on a week to week or month to month basis, trying to figure out how risky it is to keep going forward. Uh, pretty, pretty much it's, I mean, if it goes well, like I said, it'll be, might be a turning point and taking the UFC to another level. If anything goes wrong, anything at all, uh, I don't, I won't say it'll be the end of it, but it will set the sport back and it'll probably send like a chain of events. It won't kill the UFC, but other companies, when the UFC suffers, every level of MMA below it suffers. So while the UFC might take a big hit, it'll force it to take a couple steps back, it might knock out a lot of, a couple companies, a tier or two below the UFC. Because most people still attribute MMA to the UFC. And every time the UFC takes a step back, if the UFC's struggling, all the rest of these organizations are on life support. When the UFC is doing gangbusters, all these other companies are basically just flirting with being in the black. So however it goes to the UFC, basically is going to shape the MMA landscape moving forward. So I have a question uh, sort of for the both of you guys. Do you envision a scenario where this becomes kind of a watershed moment for fighters' rights, for fighters realizing that this was when everyone would be on their side if it came to coming together. It's, uh, sorry, if, if there was some kind of tragedy, I mean, um, and fighters getting together and saying, you know, this is our moment. This is where we need to take a stand as fighters, as professionals. Is that, do you think that's possible? No. I don't think it's going to happen. I think this was like the, the Alamo, if that was ever going to happen. Uh, and I think that since that situation has passed, I think we'll never see it. Uh, I think 
I won't say never, but I think this is the best instance where they could have, there's been a couple instances where the, the fighters had a chance to really get some leverage and really put their foot on the ground and push forward. And as fighters are apt to do, they don't do it. They've always favored themselves over the company, over the group. They've always picked the UFC over their fellow fighters, whether it's Donald Cerrone, Jose Aldo, whoever speaks up, only speaks up until they get their money, they get what they want, and then they fall back. And this has been, one of, once again, one of the few instances where they have the ability to kind of get some leverage or to push back. But the thing about it is in, in mixed martial arts, the paydays are so small, the opportunities are so limited, the guys are willing to do whatever it takes to get their shot. And they don't look at it as, well, I've set the UFC set fighters back. They think I've set myself and my family forward. And it's one thing I, I tell Rafael on the show all the time. It's like with civil rights or any, any movement, everybody, there has to be somebody who's willing to risk their life or in this case, their career to get the point across so that other people will benefit. But in MMA, people aren't willing to put their career on the line. They're only, they, they want to put their career on the line, but also benefit at the end. And that's not how any movement works. Somebody has to fall. Somebody has to take the fall. Someone has to lose everything they have so that you, me, and people down the line can win. But the people, they want to not lose anything and they want to win at the end, which is why they can't make any headway. They're afraid of taking a loss. When the Fertitas bought UFC, they were willing to take a loss, take multiple losses to get ahead. No fighters want to do that. No group of fighters is. And until they are, the UFC is always going to have the leverage and they're always going to pull the wool over their eyes. Yeah, I think that's always the case there. The, the fighters will not be able to um, band together in a way that will fight for that power back. I just don't see it happening. What are your final thoughts on that, Mike? No, I mean, you guys um, pretty... You know, you guys make a pretty compelling case. I guess, you know, coming from things from from the legal perspective, you'd like to believe that when the time comes from a liability perspective for people to start to carve out where they're, um, where the responsibility for any kind of calamity uh, in the past and any kind of pre preventing any kind of future calamity in the future, you would like to think that, that this more than anything highlights the difference between where the promoter stands and where the fighter stands in that respect and if, if and if a fighter's family now i'm not again i'm not just talking about a fighter but if a fighter's family if a loved one were to be adversely affected you would think that it'd be the kind of galvanizing force that would lead to fighters kind of recognizing what they have in common in in that class as fighters more so than just trying to curry favor with with promoters who are well insulated from any of these negative effects. Doing favors for billionaires. They won't help their team out who's struggling, but they're willing to take a short notice fight and risk their health for a person who, who has his own private jet plane. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. And then get mad at fans for not caring. They care, they want us to fight the battle for them. Nah, dude, you sign on for this line of work, you gotta fight this battle. Me complaining don't do nothing. Dana's gonna call me an idiot and still short you on your pay. You have to decide it's important enough for you, maybe for you not to benefit before young fighters coming up, the next generation. You have to you have to decide you care more about them winning than you do about yourself. And I have not seen any fighter outside of maybe Leslie Smith who is willing to make that sacrifice. And look, I'll speak, I mean, it's, forgive me if I speak out of turn, 
but I, I feel fairly confident that you will agree. Any fighter who decides that they want to be the Kurt Flood or they want to be the, uh, you know, using the civil rights metaphor, the Martin Luther King of, of this movement and who wants to, you know, speak out and, and try to uh, galvanize fighters in this particular time frame to the cause, there's an open invitation to come and be interviewed here and to get your, get your piece out. Uh, people want to hear it. But they don't want to, they want to hear it from coming from the fighters. It's not going to be the same if fans and media members are telling the fighters what's in their hearts. They've got to say what's in their hearts, if it's in their hearts. And if it's not. And also, they got to say it when it matters. You can't say it when you're on your four or five losing streak about to get cut. Nobody cares then. Yeah, that too. You have to say it when you have something to lose. Say it when you're on that five, five winning streak and you're in the toss for title fight. Then start running your mouth about fighter pay. But everybody starts doing it when they're about to get cut or when they're in Bellator or some other organization. Well, we don't care now. You're, you're, and what does Dana say? Well, he's on a four or five losing streak. Of course he's complaining about his paycheck. you got to say it when something's on the line and nobody will do it. Oh, definitely, definitely. So with that in mind, let's let everybody know what we're working on so we can go ahead and close out this episode. Uh, Mike, I have one more thing. One more thing. Um, you know, as, as, as one of the people who, who run the site, we're always looking for ways to make our shows and to make our content better. Um, you know, feel free to uh, email the show, uh, MMA ratings podcast, uh, gmail.com. Feel free to uh, rate our shows on, on the podcast platforms. Obviously, you know, we like high ratings. You know, those are good for getting more people to hear the show. So if you have iTunes, if you have Google Podcasts, if you have uh, Spotify, you know, rate us on all the different platforms, send in your feedback with the rating, you know, we'll, you'll, we'll read you on the air, we'll shout you out, we'll shout out your, you know, whatever you want to, you know, kind of promote, if you want to, you know, tell us how to make the show better and tell us what you like and what you dislike about the show. If you don't want me to ever come on again, because I'm a shill, <laughs> you know, or if you, or if you want to hear more bars from Shawan about uh, this fighter's uh, camp and this, this fighter's uh, lack of skills, or if you want, you know, Raphael to uh, com combat a little bit more with, um, you know, listen, anything, anything that you might want to know, anything you might want to uh, see going forward on the MMA ratings podcast, you know, we're in it for, for fans, we're fans like you. So feel free um, we've got us. We've got a segment for to hear your voices. So we want to hear your voices. The site's about rating fights, and it's about making your voice heard. So this is this reflects in every respect. So this is just me doing the hard sell for any of the listeners out there. Hit me up, uh, uh, MTFIII on Twitter. I won't necessarily fight with you on Twitter, but I'll at least hear what you have to say. Um, all right, sorry guys. <laughs> What about you, Schwan? What, uh, what are you working on? Uh, I finished my article on Daredevil, breaking down the techniques, strategies, and fight scenes from the Netflix series. So I sent that over to Michael. So hopefully that'll be done this week. It's yeah, in a couple of days. That that will be the fifth anniversary of the debut of Daredevil on Netflix. So if you're a Daredevil fan, if you know people who are Daredevil fans, I'm gonna reach out a little bit more to the people um, you know, that are part of the Save Daredevil movement to try to get that show back on. Uh, you should be hearing uh, from 
one of the guys who worked on the show. And then a couple of days, I'll reach out to him again. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll line up an interview for him in the next couple of days. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing a lot for, obviously, there's real fights, but there's the fictional fights that are based on the real fights. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of interest in the interplay between comic book fighting and MMA fighting. And hopefully uh, we can talk a little bit more, Shawan, you and I, about uh, other stuff. I mean, I know Black Widow's not coming out until November, so there's a little bit of space between now and then for you to kind of do another breakdown of another comic book fighter. Let me tell you, nobody, because there's a lot of nerds who fight a lot of pro fighters, and nobody's pickier about fight scenes than one comic book nerd and two MMA fighters. They're like, that looks so fake, that looks so phony. And I talk to fighters and be like, man, that Captain America was nice, man. I had to watch the movie again. I saw that piece you did. I had to watch it again, man. That was some clean boxing. And it's not it's not real boxing. It's not real fight technique, but everybody appreciates something when it's well. Same thing as pro wrestling. Choreographed or not, people appreciate it when it looks realistic and it's well done. And some people just like, you know, people write comic book series about breaking down a, a, a character's fighting style and his skill. And when you're doing it for a live show, that's part of the fighter's characterization. So if you mess that up, i.e. Iron Fist season one, it's a problem. So all I'm doing is highlighting the connection between the characterization of the fighter and the quality of the fight scenes. And a lot of the pieces I've done, I've always got good feedback on them. I think the Captain America people, like at least twice a week, somebody tweets me or DMs me about the Captain America piece and be like, man, that's really, that was really well done, dude. That's like, you treat it like it was a real fight. So I just like doing them for, it covers both ends of my interests, combat sports and comic books. So it's just a pleasure to get to do them. Good stuff there, sir. So we will be back next week. I'm sure there's some, I'm sure we're going to hear something within this week Something that something ridiculous from MMA. I'm sure they're going, they're going to announce a fight on the moon, or they're going to book a fight between um, Mike Mike Perry and uh, Michael Jai White, or something like something ridiculous is going to happen within the next week or so. We'll have plenty to talk about next week for the MMA Ratings Podcast, and you can always find us on uh, various platforms, starting with our flag flagship at MMARatings.net. Go there, rate the fights, let us know how excited you are for the upcoming fights and what you thought about past fights. Use our star system to rate the uh, action there. You can find our podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple iTunes, and always on um, YouTube at MMA Ratings. You can catch us on Instagram and Twitter at MMARatings.net, and all three of us on are active on those platforms. Myself at rgarcia underscore sports. Michael's at MTF the third, which is the Roman numeral three. And Schwan is at Black Jordan Green. And with that in mind. Wait, wait, Raphael, Raphael, got one more thing to say. Go ahead. For all those fans out there who constantly feel the need to critique me or comment on my association or my, my breakdown of fighters, I have to explain this one thing to you. The people, the people you watch who win championships and direct these guys, they come to me. I don't search these people out. I don't want to talk to them. I don't need to talk to them. I know what I know. They're contacting me because I know better than you. So when you're talking about keyboard warriors, they don't know what they're talking about. I guess the, the former world, the Bellator champions coach didn't know what I was talking about. People, people contact me all the time. So I'm not just spouting this because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just making this up. I'm some idiot fan behind the keyboard. No, I work with camps. I work with top ranked fighters. I work with championship level fighters. 
I'm, I'm actually speaking knowledge. I'm actually letting you behind the curtain and sharing knowledge. Now, there are going to be some fighters who disagree with what I, who dislike what I say. They never disagree. You're mean, you're over the top, you're rude. Nobody has once told me I'm wrong about what I'm saying because I'm not. They just don't like the fact that I'm saying it out loud. Isn't my problem. Train your fighter better. That's not my issue. Do your job better so your fighter stops getting knocked out or tapped out. That's not my problem. The guys I trained up, that doesn't happen to you. So maybe you need to work on that part. But I'm just trying to help fans get that, that space between what you're seeing and what's happening behind, behind scenes. When you're saying that guy had the wrong fight plan, yeah, I know he had the right fight, fight plan. I talked to his coach. I emailed him and told him, this is what you need to do. He chose to do otherwise. He got topped out. That's not me making it up. That's not me bragging. That's me trying to help bridge the gap between camps and fans. Because a lot of y'all don't deal with fighters. Y'all don't deal with camps. So you don't really know. And I don't care enough about access to lie to y'all. So I'm just doing you a favor. If you don't like it, you can just block me. Or you can complain. We'll, we'll have that conversation as much as you want. But the, com but the conversation begins and ends with me knowing better than you. And me knowing better than a lot of people who are stealing money in these corners. So I just want to make sure I get that out there. And Team Alpha Male, I know y'all hate me. But if you knew my record against y'all, for guys I train, who have held train against y'all, you would really hate me because it's ugly. That's all I got to say. Raphael, I, I wish I, I wish I had access to the ether instrumental to put behind that uh, that last uh, little bit of bars from Raphael because that was that was ether. I, mean, I might have to clip that out. Just we so can do that. We can do that at, at, at some point. Um, so yeah, guys, we're done. Thank you all for having being on the show, and we'll be back next week. Um, have a good weekend, everybody, and stay safe. All right, guys. All right, guys. Thanks again. <laughs>